Clause 1, the General Welfare Clause. This clause is also referred to as the Spending Clause and the Taxing and Spending Clause. It states that Congress may lay and collect taxes for the common defense or general welfare of the United States. The U.S. Supreme Court has not often defined general welfare, leaving the political question to Congress. In United States v. Butler, 1936, the court for the first time construed the clause. The dispute centered on a tax collected from processors of agricultural products such as meat. The funds raised by the tax were not paid into the general funds of the Treasury but were rather specially earmarked for farmers. The court struck down the tax, ruling that the general welfare language in the taxing and spending clause related only to matters of national, as distinguished from local, welfare. Congress continues to make expansive use of the taxing and spending clause, for instance, the Social Security program is authorized under the Taxing and Spending Clause. Clause 2, Borrowing Power. Congress has the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. In 1871, when deciding Knox v. Lee, the court ruled that this clause permitted Congress to emit bills and make them legal tender in satisfaction of debts. Whenever Congress borrows money, it is obligated to repay the sum as stipulated in the original agreement. However, such agreements are only binding on the conscience of the sovereign, as the doctrine of sovereign immunity prevents a creditor from suing in court if the government reneges on its commitment. Clause 3, Commerce Clause. The Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, and among the several states, and with the Indian tribes. The Supreme Court has seldom restrained the use of the Commerce Clause for widely varying purposes. The first important decision related to the Commerce Clause was Gibbons v. Ogden, decided by a unanimous court in 1824. The case involved conflicting federal and state laws, Thomas Gibbons had a federal permit to navigate steamboats in the Hudson River, while the other, Aaron Ogden, had a monopoly to do the same granted by the state of New York. Ogden contended that commerce included only buying and selling of goods and not their transportation. Chief Justice John Marshall rejected this notion. Marshall suggested that commerce includes navigation of goods, and that it must have been contemplated by the framers. Marshall added that Congress's power over commerce is complete in itself, may be exercised to its utmost extent, and acknowledges no limitations other than are prescribed in the Constitution. The expansive interpretation of the Commerce Clause was restrained during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when a laissez-faire attitude dominated the court. In United States v. E. C. Knight Company, 1895, the Supreme Court limited the newly enacted Sherman Antitrust Act, which had sought to break up the monopolies dominating the nation's economy. The court ruled that Congress could not regulate the manufacture of goods, even if they were later shipped to other states. Chief Justice Melville Fuller wrote, Commerce succeeds to manufacture, and is not a part of it. The U.S. Supreme Court sometimes ruled New Deal programs unconstitutional because they stretched the meaning of the Commerce Clause. In Schechter Poultry Corporation v. United States, 1935, the court unanimously struck down industrial codes regulating the slaughter of poultry, declaring that Congress could not regulate commerce relating to the poultry which had come to a permanent rest within the state. As Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes put it, so far as the poultry here in question is concerned, the flow of interstate commerce has ceased. Judicial rulings against attempted use of Congress's Commerce Clause powers continued during the 1930s. In 1937, the Supreme Court began moving away from its laissez-faire attitude concerning congressional legislation and the Commerce Clause, when it ruled in National Labor Relations Board v. Jones and Lachlan Steel Company, that the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, commonly known as the Wagner Act, was constitutional. The legislation under scrutiny prevented employers from engaging in unfair labor practices such as firing workers for joining unions. In sustaining this act, the court signaled its return to the philosophy espoused by John Marshall, 
that Congress could pass laws regulating actions that even indirectly influenced interstate commerce. This new attitude became firmly set into place in 1942. In Wickard v. Filburn, the court ruled that production quotas under the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938 were constitutionally applied to agricultural production, in this instance, homegrown wheat for private consumption, that was consumed purely intrastate, because its effect upon interstate commerce placed it within the power of Congress to regulate under the Commerce Clause. This decision marked the beginning of the court's total deference to Congress' claims of Commerce Clause powers, which lasted into the 1990s. United States v. Lopez, 1995, was the first decision in six decades to invalidate a federal statute on the grounds that it exceeded the power of the Congress under the Commerce Clause. The court held that while Congress had broad lawmaking authority under the Commerce Clause, the power was limited, and did not extend so far from commerce as to authorize the regulation of the carrying of handguns, especially when there was no evidence that carrying them affected the economy on a massive scale. In a later case, United States v. Morrison, 2000, the justices ruled that Congress could not make such laws even when there was evidence of aggregate effect. In contrast to these rulings, the Supreme Court also continues to follow the precedent set by Wickard v. Filburn. In Gonzalez v. Reich it ruled that the Commerce Clause granted Congress the authority to criminalize the production and use of homegrown cannabis even where states approve its use for medicinal purposes. The court held that, as with the agricultural production in the earlier case, homegrown cannabis is a legitimate subject of federal regulation because it competes with marijuana that moves in interstate commerce. Other powers of Congress. Congress may establish uniform laws relating to naturalization and bankruptcy. It may also coin money, regulate the value of American or foreign currency and punish counterfeiters. Congress may fix the standards of weights and measures. Furthermore, Congress may establish post offices and post roads, the roads, however, need not be exclusively for the conveyance of mail. Congress may promote the progress of science and useful arts by granting copyrights and patents of limited duration. Section 8, Clause 8 of Article 1, known as the Copyright Clause, is the only instance of the word right used in the original Constitution, though the word does appear in several amendments. Though perpetual copyrights and patents are prohibited, the Supreme Court has ruled in Eldred v. Ashcroft, 2003, that repeated extensions to the term of copyright do not constitute perpetual copyright. Also note that this is the only power granted where the means to accomplish its stated purpose is specifically provided for. Courts inferior to the Supreme Court may be established by Congress. Congress has several powers related to war and the armed forces. Under the War Powers Clause, only Congress may declare war, but in several cases it has, without declaring war, granted the President the authority to engage in military conflicts. Five wars have been declared in United States history, the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, World War I and World War II. Some historians argue that the legal doctrines and legislation passed during the operations against Pancho Villa constitute a sixth declaration of war. Congress may grant letters of mark and reprisal. Congress may establish and support the armed forces, but no appropriation made for the support of the army may be used for more than two years. This provision was inserted because the framers feared the establishment of a standing army, beyond civilian control, during peacetime. Congress may regulate or call forth the state militias, but the states retain the authority to appoint officers and train personnel. Congress also has exclusive power to make rules and regulations governing the land and naval forces. Although the executive branch and the Pentagon have asserted an ever-increasing measure of involvement in this process, the U.S. Supreme Court has often reaffirmed Congress's exclusive hold on this power, for example Burns v. Wilson, 346 U.S. 137, 1953. Congress used this power twice soon after World War II with the enactment of two statutes, 
the Uniform Code of Military Justice to improve the quality and fairness of courts martial and military justice, and the Federal Tort Claims Act, which among other rights had allowed military service persons to sue for damages until the U.S. Supreme Court repealed that section of the statute in a divisive series of cases, known collectively as the Ferris Doctrine. Congress has the exclusive right to legislate in all cases whatsoever for the nation's capital, the District of Columbia. Congress chooses to devolve some of such authority to the elected mayor and council of the District of Columbia. Nevertheless, Congress remains free to enact any legislation for the district so long as constitutionally permissible, to overturn any legislation by the city government, and technically to revoke the city government at any time. Congress may also exercise such jurisdiction over land purchased from the states for the erection of forts and other buildings. Clause 18, Implied Powers of Congress, Necessary and Proper. The Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States, or in any department or officer thereof. Finally, Congress has the power to do whatever is necessary and proper to carry out its enumerated powers and, crucially, all others vested in it. This has been interpreted to authorize criminal prosecution of those whose actions have a substantial effect on interstate commerce in Wickard v. Filburn. However, Thomas Jefferson, in the Kentucky Resolutions, supported by James Madison, maintained that a penal power could not be inferred from a power to regulate, and that the only penal powers were for treason, counterfeiting, piracy and felony on the high seas, and offenses against the law of nations. The necessary and proper clause has been interpreted extremely broadly, thereby giving Congress wide latitude in legislation. The first landmark case involving the clause was McCulloch v. Maryland, 1819, which involved the establishment of a national bank. Alexander Hamilton, in advocating the creation of the bank, argued that there was a more or less direct relationship between the bank and the powers of collecting taxes, borrowing money, regulating trade between the states, and raising and maintaining fleets and navies. Thomas Jefferson countered that Congress's powers can all be carried into execution without a national bank. A bank therefore is not necessary, and consequently not authorized by this phrase. Chief Justice John Marshall agreed with the former interpretation. Marshall wrote that a constitution listing all of Congress's powers would partake of a prolixity of a legal code and could scarcely be embraced by the human mind. Since the constitution could not possibly enumerate the minor ingredients of the powers of Congress, Marshall deduced that Congress had the authority to establish a bank from the great outlines of the general welfare, commerce and other clauses. Under this doctrine of the necessary and proper clause, Congress has sweepingly broad powers, known as implied powers, not explicitly enumerated in the constitution. However, the Congress cannot enact law solely on the implied powers, any action must be necessary and proper in the execution of the enumerated powers. Section 9. Limits on Federal Power. The ninth section of Article 1 places limits on federal powers, including those of Congress. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit, shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, unless in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. No bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. No capitation, or other direct, tax shall be laid, unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. No tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state. No preference shall be given by any regulation of commerce or revenue to the ports of one state over those of another, nor shall vessels bound to, or from, one state be obliged to enter, clear, or pay duties in another. 
no money shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law, and a regular statement and account of receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them, shall, without the consent of the Congress, except of any present, emolument, office, or title, of any kind whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.